This is the Sunday Catholic Word, a production of Catholic Answers, the only podcast to look at the Sunday Mass readings from an apologetics perspective. Hey everyone, welcome to the Sunday Catholic Word, a podcast where we reflect on the upcoming Sunday Mass readings and pick out the details that are relevant for explaining and defending our Catholic faith. I'm Carlo Broussard, staff apologist and speaker for Catholic Answers and the host for this podcast. In this episode, we're going to focus on three details that are relevant to explaining and defending the faith. The first comes from the second reading, which is taken from Romans chapter 6, verses 3 through 4 and 8 through 11. And the relevant topics are the salvific efficacy of baptism and the nature of justification. The remaining two details come from the gospel reading, which is taken from Matthew chapter 10, verses 37 through 42. And the relevant topics are Jesus' divinity and the authority of the apostles, and I might add, the continuation of that authority beyond the apostolic 12. So let's start with the second reading, again, taken from Romans 6, 3 through 4 and 8 through 11. Here's what Paul writes. Are you unaware that we who were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were indeed buried with him through baptism into death, so that just as Christ was raised from the dead, by the glory of the Father, we too might live in newness of life. If then we have died with Christ, we believe that we shall also live with him. We know that Christ, raised from the dead, dies no more. Death no longer has power over him. As to his death, he died to sin once and for all. As to his life, he lives for God. Consequently, you too must think of yourselves as dead to sin and living for God in Christ Jesus. The detail that we're going to focus on is the death to sin. That's a consequence of the death that occurs in baptism. Notice Paul says, we were baptized into Christ's death, buried with him through baptism into death, and consequently, he says, we must think of ourselves as dead to sin. Now, the first thing to note about this is that baptism is not merely a symbol. Rather, baptism frees us from sin. And the nature of such freedom from sin is not merely an extrinsic declaration where God no longer holds us accountable for sin, but an interior transformation whereby sin no longer has a hold on us. Notice Paul says that because of the baptismal death in Christ, we must consider ourselves dead to sin. And such death, according to verse 6, which is not part of the selected reading, is a freedom from the, quote-unquote, enslavement to sin. Paul writes this, We know that our old self was crucified with him so that the sinful body might be destroyed and we might no longer be enslaved to sin. This language is language of interior transformation. Paul continues the same line of thought in verses 17 through 18. He actually uses a form of the Greek word for free, eleuthero, in relation to the freedom from sin that we receive in Christ. Quote, but thanks be to God that you who were once slaves of sin have become obedient from the heart to the standard of teaching to which you were committed, and having been set free, eleutherinthentes, from sin, have become slaves of righteousness. So, baptism is not merely a symbol, but it's freeing us from sin in this interior sense. Now, this interior freedom from sin is nothing other than salvation or justification. Paul identifies it as such in verse 7, again, which is not part of the selected reading. There, Paul writes this, 
For he who has died, which kind of death? The death in baptism. For he who has died is freed from sin. Now, as pointed out in Catholic circles by apologists, my colleague here and good friend at Catholic Answers, Jimmy Aiken, is that the Greek doesn't say freed from sin. The Greek word translated freed is dikaiou, which means to put into a right relationship with God, acquit, declare, and treat as righteous. This is the same word Paul uses when he speaks of our justification by faith. In Romans 5.1, he writes, since we are justified, dikaiothentes, by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. So the phrase freed from sin in Romans 6.7 can literally be translated justified from sin. For Paul, justification can include sanctification, the interior transformation of being made holy, put in the right relationship with God, grounded and rooted in the holiness that he brings about within us. This sanctification, which is the interior renewal of the soul, whereby the objective guilt of sin is removed. And that justification, that interior transformation, in which there's an interior renewal of the soul, whereby the objective guilt of sin is removed, that justification takes place in baptism. Paul's teaching here, therefore, reveals the spiritual efficacy of baptism, the salvific efficacy of baptism, and even the nature of justification as an interior transformation in which we are freed from the enslavement to sin. Now, this has apologetical significance on two counts. First, it refutes the view among some Christians that baptism is merely a symbol and has no salvific efficacy. Second, it refutes the idea that some Christians embrace that our justification is merely an extrinsic declaration by God to be in a right relationship with him and does not involve our interior sanctification. So that idea is refuted here by Paul's theology about baptism and what happens in baptism, at the same time explaining that na the nature of justification. Okay, so now we turn to the gospel reading, again taken from Matthew chapter 10, verses 37 through 42. Here's what Jesus says. Whoever loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. And whoever loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. And whoever does not take up his cross and follow after me is not worthy of me. Whoever finds his life will lose it. And whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. Whoever receives you receives me. And whoever receives me receives the one who sent me. Whoever receives a prophet because he is a prophet will receive a prophet's reward. And whoever receives a righteous man because he is a righteous man will receive a righteous man's reward. And whoever gives only a cup of cold water to one of these little ones to drink because the little one is a disciple. The first detail that I want to draw your attention to is Jesus' is teaching that we must love him before and above all else. Yes, even our family members and our own lives. Concerning our family members, he states, whoever loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. Whoever loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. Concerning our own lives, he says, whoever does not take up his cross and follow after me is not worthy of me. Whoever finds his life will lose it. Whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. For the first century Jews, the idea of taking up your cross, that meant death. That meant losing your life. Jesus is saying that our love for him must come before the love that we have for our own lives. Notice, he's claiming the entirety of our heart. He must be our primary love. In other words, he is our life's ultimate end goal. At least that's what Jesus is claiming. Now, think about it. How could Jesus make such a claim unless he thought he was God? 
Only God has the prerogative to claim our heart in its entirety and demand that we love him above, before, and above all else, because only he is our life's ultimate end goal. So with this claim, the classic trilemma argument takes shape. Jesus is either a madman, a lunatic, or God in the flesh. And given that it's not reasonable to think Jesus is a madman or a lunatic, even our opponents to Christianity say he's a good, at least a good guy, he's a wise guy. If he's wise, don't you think he's wise enough to know what he is? If he's a good guy, then we can trust him. So given that it's not reasonable to think Jesus is a madman or a lunatic, he must be who he thinks he is, namely God, one who can claim our heart's entirety, the one who can claim that only in him do, do we find complete fulfillment in achieving our life's ultimate goal. So Jesus' teaching about the love we must have for him reveals his self-understanding. He believes himself to be God, and it's reasonable to believe him so we can make an act of faith and believe in him. Now, the second detail worth highlighting is Jesus' teaching, whoever receives you, receives me. This reveals the authority of the apostles. Uh, apologists often appeal to this verse in order to establish at least the initial hierarchy that Jesus establishes within his church in the first century. These apostles were to speak on behalf of Jesus with Jesus's authority. They were the voice of our Lord for the Christians of the first century, especially for those who were living after our Lord's ascension. And notice that their relation to Jesus, insofar as being ambassadors of Jesus, is parallel to the relation that Jesus has with his Father. Just as Jesus speaks with the Father's authority, and to reject Jesus is to reject the Father, so to the apostles speak with Jesus's authority. And to reject the apostles and their teaching is to reject Jesus. Now, here's the question. Why would Jesus intend there to be such ambassadors for him in the first century, but not for centuries to come? If Jesus saw it necessary for Christians in the first century to have such an authority to speak on his behalf, well, then how much more would Christians of later centuries need such an authority? Much more. And furthermore, there's no evidence in the New Testament that such a paradigm shifted or changed. And I'm speaking here to those who would say that, well, maybe there was a living authority to speak on behalf of Christ for the first century Christians, but after the death of the last apostle, all we have are their apostolic writings to appeal to as a testimony and voice of our Lord here on earth. But that claim would have to shoulder the burden of proof to show that the paradigm shifted or changed. Nowhere do the New Testament authors speak in a way that there would no longer be an authoritative voice for the church beyond the twelve. In fact, there's evidence that such a paradigm would continue. Take Paul's instruction to Titus, for example, in Titus 2.15. Declare these things, exhort and reprove with all authority. Let no one disregard you. It appears that Paul views Titus to have an authority to teach akin to his authority to teach as an apostle. Now, the significance that this line of reasoning has for apologetics is that it provides a positive argument for the continuation of, authority, of an authoritative voice that speaks on behalf of Christ within his church, which in turn serves as an argument against the Protestant doctrine of sola scriptura, the idea that after the apostles, our only infallible testimony for God's revelation is scripture. No, there was, an, there was a paradigm that was established by Christ to have a living teaching authority who spoke on behalf of Christ. And given that there's no evidence that the paradigm shifted, and there's enough evidence to suggest that the paradigm continued, we can conclude 
that a living teaching authority to speak on behalf of Christ still remains for Christians after the first century, all up, all the way up to this day. And of course, as Catholics, we would identify that authoritative voice in the Bishop of Rome and all of the bishops in union with him. So this upcoming 13th Sunday of Ordinary Time is not wanting when it comes to material for doing apologetics. It provides an opportunity to reflect on four major issues. The salvific efficacy of baptism, that's pretty important. The nature of justification, that's important too. Jesus' divinity, can't get more important than that. And the authority of the apostles and the continuation of such authority beyond the apostles. Thank you so much, my friends, for subscribing to the podcast. Please be sure to tell your friends about it. Invite them to subscribe as well. And if you're interested in getting some cool mugs and stickers with my logo, Mr. Sunday Podcasts, go to shop.catholic.com. My friends, I hope you have a blessed 13th Sunday of Ordinary Time. And on that Sunday, happy Lord's Day to you. God bless. Thank you for listening to the Sunday Catholic Word. Find more great shows by visiting catholicanswerspodcasts.com or just search for Catholic Answers wherever you listen to podcasts. Podcasts.